Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to The Power Test, the political podcast that each week asks whether it's really all over for the Tories and what Labour should do to win power and change Britain for the better. Everything appears to be broken, from healthcare to transport, the economy to the environment. There has to be a better way. I'm Aisha Hazarika. And I'm Sam Friedman. And each week we'll be focusing on a different topic with experts to help guide us through it. And together decide if Labour are meeting The Power Test. So thanks so much for joining us. Now, before we dive into our very first episode with two very special guests, we've got Alistair Campbell and Claire Ainsley, who used to work for Keir Starmer. Let's introduce ourselves. My name is Aisha Hazarika. I'm a former Labour advisor. I was a civil servant, actually, for a very long time before that. Then I was a Labour advisor. I worked for um, lots of people from Gordon Brown to Harriet Harman to Ed Miliband. Huge success. (laughs) Went really well. Um, And now I am a political commentator and columnist and I basically sort of talk and think about politics for a living now. Uh, and I'm Sam Friedman. I started out working on the other side as an advisor to Michael Gove, left government in 2013, pretty disillusioned and fed up, and then have come sort of back into politics really to try and answer this question of, of, of how do we get a better government uh, and how do we do things more effectively. So I'm now also mainly a political writer and commentator. So, Sam, we launch our um, small but mighty podcast, we hope, in some really interesting times. We've had a really big weekend. First of all, we have a new king, a new Carolean era. Did you watch the coronation? Were you gripped? I didn't. I have to say I find (gasps) I'm not not a sort of Republican. I'm sort of quite happy with the monarchy as one of the few bits of our constitution that seems to be vaguely working. But um, I have to say, I do find the actual process of it all extremely boring. Sam, why do you hate Britain? <laughs> it's a very new elite attitude. <laughs> well, exactly. I, know. I feel ashamed, but I just, I, I tried to watch it for a bit. And then after about 10 minutes, I was looking at my phone and just, sort of drift, I just can't, I can't be bothered. Well, 
He might be a constitutional patriotic sickle, but I watched it all, uh, <laughs> listeners. In fact, not only did I watch it, I was actually covering it for a CBS, an American CBS news channel, and I was right down by Buckingham Palace, and it was sort of hysteria down there. And we had this incredible view, and at one point the sort of golden carriage went by, and I was in the middle of doing some very boring kind of commentary, and the woman just stopped, and she went, this is so cool! <laughs> <laughs> so that's basically how I watched it. But listen, um, there were far more important events happening this weekend if you're a political nerd like us, and they were the local elections. I mean, Sam, a really fascinating set of results. Yes, and I think uh, quite misinterpreted by a lot of the press who sort of oddly ended up focusing on it being uh, maybe a bit disappointing for Labour, which uh, uh, I don't think it was. I think what it was is catastrophic for the Conservative Party, not just because they got only 26% of of, of the votes uh, on the day, but also because we're seeing this anti-Tory coalition mobilising around them and Labour won where it was the main opposition and the Lib Dems won where they were the main opposition and the Greens won where they were the main opposition. Um, And you saw this sort of incredible efficiency of this anti-Tory vote. So even though the Lib Dems only did a little bit better than they did in 2019, uh, Labour did, you know, seven points better, but, you know, they only got 35%. So it wasn't a storming victory in terms of the percentage, but they were winning places uh, you know, like Amber Valley, like Dover, that are way down their list of target seats for the general election. The Lib Debs were winning places like South Oxfordshire, way down the list of their target seats for the general election. So if I was a Tory strategist, I'd be really nervous because this is saying to me, we've got this sort of coalition mobilising against us and we're going to get pincered everywhere across the country. I mean... My reading of it is clearly it would be insane for Labour or anybody to think that it's a slam dunk majority for Labour. Of course, Scotland wasn't factored in and and lots of interesting things could be happening in in Scotland. Other places weren't factored in. But the big thing for me in terms of where we go from here is the political narrative must have shifted in the sense that whatever happens, there is a strong likelihood that Keir Starmer is going to be prime minister, whether that is in a majority government, whether it's, you know, they'd go alone in a minority government, whether there is some kind of coalition government. It looks like for the first time since 2010, there is a big chance that we will not have a conservative prime minister in Downing Street. And that is a significant event for the political landscape. And there's a lot of discussion about this of will they win a majority or won't they? How much do you think it actually matters? You know, how much difference is there between Starmer's Labour Party and Ed Davies' Liberal Democrats? On what issues would the Lib Dems actually disagree with Labour and bring down a Labour government? PR. Apart from PR. <laughs> Obviously, <laughs> Labour are not going to go anywhere but near. I think on the... Um, and these are all the questions we're going to be sort of teasing out through the course of the, this podcast, because we know that a lot of people listening to this will not just be diehard Labour supporters. You may be a Liberal Democrat who wants change or a Conservative voter who wants change or a Green voter or an SNP. So there'll be lots of thinking about how this anti-Tory coalition is going to, to work out. And we don't, nobody knows the answer to that. David Cameron was a much more effective Prime Minister when he was governing with the Lib Dems than when he was trying to govern with the Conservative majority. In some ways, it's useful to have a kind of party that's broadly aligned with you, offsetting your most extreme elements. But if if you're Labour, that's not what you're thinking. You want to come in as a majority Labour Prime Minister. But that's what we're going to be, you know, testing out as as we go on. And it'll be interesting actually to hear from our listeners. what, What do you think about that? idea, would you be completely happy with a coalition 
government or, or do you think it would be better for Labour to actually win quite a strong majority? After the Tories' crushing defeat last week, it's clear that the country is desperate for change. And that's what this podcast series is all about, how we try to get to a better Britain. And over the coming weeks, we're going to be joined by people who have possible and hopefully plausible solutions. But we certainly agree that to get the change we want, we also need a change in government. But the big question that many of us are asking, particularly after the local elections, are Labour ready for power? And joining us to discuss this question, someone who was a key part of Labour's team that won big more than a quarter of a century ago in 1997 and governed for 13 years, host of the massive podcast The Rest is Politics and the author of the new book, But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help Fix It, Alistair Campbell. Hello, Alistair. Hi. And someone who was Keir Starmer's Executive Director of Policy from 2020 to 2022. Someone who helped realign Labour's strategy since the Corbyn defeat of 2019 and who is now the Director of the Centre-Left Renewal Project run by the US think tank, the Progressive Policy Institute. It's Claire Ainsley. Hello, Claire. Hello. So we're going to start with those local election results. What do they tell you both about the state of politics and where things are at the moment? We'll start with you, Alistair. I think there's a really powerful driving narrative that the country really wants to get rid of the Tories. And there's still a little bit of doubt about whether that means getting a a Labour government. I don't think you should read that so much into them. I thought that the narrative that developed that said if this was a general election, Labour wouldn't get a majority, I think is I think is a bit silly because it, 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 it puts to one side so many factors like the number of independents, like the number of like the Greens and the Lib Dems doing better in a lot of places than they than they will do in a general election where Labour is, you know, the bigger biggest of the opposition parties. But I think for me, it says that if Labour really go for it. I think Labour can win big because I really think there's such a powerful desire to get rid of the Tories. But I think that, you know, we talk in our podcast a lot about whether you go with the Mingvars strategy, you hold on to the Mingvars, you carefully tiptoe across the the floor, or you go for something big, bold and exciting. And I think what people are looking for is more of the latter. And that doesn't mean being silly, by the way. It doesn't mean saying you can do th- spend money you don't have. It doesn't mean sort of, you know, going crazy. But it just means generating a sense of hope and optimism in the country that if we do get rid of the Tories, it can be so much better. And Claire, what, what were your takeaways? Similarly, I think it's been a really encouraging result for Labour. I think if you look particularly at where they won and who they won, that was what was most significant to me, was that ever since the beginning, the strategy has always been to win this broad coalition between what you might call working class voters, but in their broadest sense and working class places, um, and align it to that coalition that's always been successful for Labour, so aligned with the more sort of liberal middle class areas. And actually, we started to see some of that take place last week. So I think it's really encouraging. I also thought what was really interesting was that the Tories are in complete denial. They're in complete denial about the overwhelming message from the electorate, which is, we want you out, we want change. So I agree with Alistair, I think there's a big opportunity for Labour now. And I think the fact that it was tight actually sends out more of a message to the voters to say, you want to get the country moving, give Labour a big mandate, and it's up to Labour to prove that Mm. we deserve it. I think the other the other interesting thing out of it is that I know Scotland wasn't taking yeah. part, 
But I do think that that, the, the sort of SNP implosion as it happened, uh, psychologically has made a big difference because I think it's, you know, Labour has felt kind of hamstrung by the fact that whatever we do, the SNP is always going to have Scotland. And that feels like it might unhinge. But listen, Labour should not be complacent at all. They should fight every single day like they think they can lose. But above all, they've got to be dominant in the debate now. They've got to make the weather between now and the election. As someone who isn't Labour, I feel like Labour are the least complacent group of people mm. that you could ever come across. They are so terrified of losing. That's I do different. worry That's sometimes different. that that fear is what creates that sort of lack of exciting message that you were talking about. They're so scared of losing. And, you know, after the last 13 years, you can understand why that, they, that they're that they not prepared to come out with that more hopeful message. I, I'll tell you what I'm, I mean by, by this uh, not being complacent. For example... I I used to shout at anybody who ever introduced Tony Blair as our next Prime Minister, Tony Blair. That's the sort of complacency. <laughs> and suggested like. a rally in Sheffield, for example. <laughs> well, you know, or just suggested that we think it's in the bag. So it's good to think it's not in the bag. But the response should not be to do what you're describing, saying, like, we've got to play, everything's got to play safe now. I'm actually doing a speech on Thursday about Europe. And I honestly think one of them, I know they won't agree with this, but one of the messages from the local elections, I really believe, is that Labour and the Lib Dems can, force to be, can afford to be much more aggressive against the government on Brexit, on the cost of Brexit, on the damage that Brexit's doing. And I'm not suggesting they come out and say, we're going to go back in. I am suggesting they say, it's not, you know, they've got this line, make Brexit work. It's fix the mess that Brexit's making. That's what they're going to do. And they've got to make people feel that that can be done. They've got to make young people in particular feel that something better is going to come. And I think that it's it's got to be a kind of above the level of a lot of the politics that we're still seeing from both sides, which is, for me, a bit too micro. But where is that? We don't really know much about what Labour's going to do. And I know many Labour strategists go, snout about the website, you know, have a look. But looking for a message shouldn't be a bear hunt for, for, for the public and for... No, and if so, you don't know. <laughs> I mean, I know some of the headline things, but Claire, you know, you've been at the heart mm. of it. This is a common criticism. What's your response to that? Well, I think the broad uh, analysis, which is you have to reassure and you have to give people hope, is basically correct. And New Labour did that brilliantly. I mean, they're the theme tune was things can only get better. That is it. That is hope being inspired out of the misery as it was of people's lived experience of living under a Tory government was miserable. And I think that actually you can't underestimate that that is a massively mobilising force and it's what's helped the Australians and it's what's helped the Americans. That said, you absolutely have to have that positive message and I think there is there is lots of policy, but people are talking about something that sits almost above that, which is the what do you stand for? And I think people need, we need to translate some of those big, I think the missions are really uh, an exciting and good step in the right direction. But we need to be able to translate that into really practical pledges because take Brexit, for example, like people really want sort of practical solutions to the cost of living. So in a sense, we can have a debate about Brexit, but they want to know we get the problem. But the problem started well before Brexit anyway. They want to know what are you going to do for me and my family and my life and my country? So my expectation is that we start to see those big overarching missions and that junking of pledges moved much more towards this is what we would tangibly do. So really retail offers, as well as that big overarching message. Because like the missions to me, you couldn't complain with the mission because they were good missions. They were quite platitudinous. They were like, let's have a good economy. Let's have a good health service. But how do you 
as you see, frame that bigger narrative, Alistair? Well, I, I like I, I like the idea of the missions. I, th- I think kicking off with one that basically gives you a lot of hostages to fortune, because it's actually talking about being, it's not just that you're going to grow the economy, you're going to grow it faster than all these other countries. Well, you can't necessarily have control over that. What I think is happening is almost like a reverse of, uh, in a way, of what we did. So the, the missions, I think, are there as like big flags in the ground. And then you can build specific policies around that. What I think there is, there still isn't is something, it's what Claire was saying, above that. So above that for us was the whole message of modernization. New Labour was born from the idea that our whole message is modernization. Till you get that, it becomes much harder to connect with the public with all the policy that then flows from the five missions. Because it's like, so that's the bit that I still want to see. I want to see the bit at the top that, you know, so we, I always say with strategy, the best strategy, you can explain them in a word, a phrase, a sentence, a, a paragraph, a, pa- a page, a speech and a book. Okay. What's the word? What's the phrase? What's the sentence? And I think that you'd get different answers from different members of the Shadow Cabinet even. And that's got to be absolutely pinned down. Claire, how much do you think that is a function of Keir Starmer's leadership at the fact that he has quite a cautious, loyally persona that he doesn't necessarily think from a big vision down? He thinks sort of from detail. Was that your experience of working with him? Do you think that's a that sort of public persona is a fair representation of what he's like? So I, that wouldn't that wasn't my experience of working with him, and I, I accept that that may be uh, others' experience of how they interpret Keir, but. My experience of working with him, and I think if you stand back and look what he's achieved in the relatively short time in our history that he's been leader of the Labour Party, he has taken the Labour Party from being not just 26 points behind the Tories, but fourth election defeat. I mean, we were in the ground when Keir took over. He has taken us from that point to the point where we are seriously considering the size of a Labour majority. I mean, that is just a phenomenal piece of work. And I, I, I don't think... I don't think he minds, but I don't think he gets nearly enough credit for doing that. That is not the work of a cautious leader. He is not by nature, in my experience, cautious. He is someone who wants to know strategically, where are you heading? Why are we getting there? The questions we would always ask at the beginning of uh, working together was around not just how we got people to vote Labour next time, but how we'd get people to vote for Labour a second time because we had started to deliver the change in the country and in their lives that they wanted to see. Now, that felt like a bit pie in the sky when we were like 26 points behind, but we still we still pose the question. Now it's actually a really serious question. So I think he's a highly strategic person. I think there is a caution about Labour because, as we've just covered, there is a sense of we've got it wrong and the stakes are so high this time. Mm. I mean, the thought of waking up, well, we won't wake up, we will be up all night. The thought of having Still another the, the thought of having another Tory government is just uh is just beyond anything that we can imagine. Like that is gonna have a huge cost to the country if this chaos is able to continue. I, I, I agree with a lot of what Claire said. I I think he does have a, a really hard streak to him. Uh I think the way that he's dealt with the whole Corbyn issue itself shows that. I think there have been other things that that have showed that. And I think that maybe what I define as strategy and what I think of as strategy, which I guess a lot of the time I think in terms of the words and the messaging and so forth, I think is that he's very methodical. I think he knows where he wants to get there and he sort of plans it step by step. And that's what makes people think often that he's cautious because he'll sort of, you know, he does sometimes just disappear. He's like just not on the radar for a bit. 
and it's because he's maybe off doing stuff that then suddenly pops up a few weeks later and you see the next the next move and i think Keir could be one of those prime ministers if he becomes prime minister who is actually much better as prime minister and as leader of the opposition because i don't it's not that he's not political but i don't think he's a kind of natural campaigner i think he feels it quite weird to sort of, and it is weird. Campaigning is a weird form of life, right? And I think he, I think he finds that part of it. He's getting a lot better at it. There's no doubt about that. But I think, like, he's getting better at PMQs. And I think that's the other thing that people are seeing. We talk about flirting. I notice a lot. Even we were walking the dogs through the park the other day, and these two women stopped me. Clearly, classic Tories. And but they were sort of, oh, having a little look at here. Oh, having a little look. And I think you, this, you see this narrative developing of a, a serious guy. We've had very unserious politics. Let's be honest, we still have unserious politics with this government. If you've got Braverman as Home Secretary, please. And you've got, Bre- what's his, Sunak, meant to be this great technocrat who, you know, who said of Brexit, I studied the numbers and worked out that the best thing for the country was this. Well, how's that working out? So I think Keir can become the serious guy who's got a, scent, a real tough streak and he's got a method to what he's if trying to do. If you were his head of communications, how much would it bother you? Because we've all looked at the focus groups. People do say boring, dull, yeah. don't know what he stands for. Would that bother you? What would you be trying to do to change that attitude? It would bother me, him? yeah, it would bother me because I do, I, I'm a bit like Claire. I, I, don't, I don't see him as being boring, but even people that I know quite well who know him a bit will say, oh, he's a bit dull. That's charisma. The, Labour should be playing into the fact that people are actually, they're sick of people like Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson's got charisma, Donald Trump's got charisma, and they've done so much damage. So actually to say, and this is, I think, I think Keir does this quite well. It's, look, um, if you want a comedian, go to a comedy club. If you want somebody serious, I'll do the job for you. So it would worry me, but I wouldn't overcompensate. But take an issue like utilities at the moment and and sewage in the waters has gone absolutely massive thanks to people outside politics like Fergal Sharkey and other people really grassroots sort of campaigns. Most people are screaming out, why don't you privatise the water companies? Yeah, sorry, why don't you nationalise the water companies? So there are are things which um, are very popular with the public that were also popular with Jeremy Corbyn, which Keir Starmer said he's not going to do. How does he convince those kind of Liberal Democrats and Greens and, and disaffected young people that he said that he's not going to do this? But what is he going to do about these issues that people do care about? See, I think on something like the water and the sewage, you're absolutely right. And I think it was a big factor in the local elections, by the way. I think yeah. sewage really was like a big thing. People think, you know, the seas and the rivers just being polluted like this. I don't think if you're the opposition, you have to give every answer to every question about what you might do to do that. But you have to persuade people that you will take action on that. What Keir has to do, essentially, is to say, we are going to clean up, clean up the seas and the rivers. We are going to take this stuff seriously because it's disgusting and it's horrible and it makes us just, you know, and you, you play in the arguments about tourism, about our image in the world and all that stuff. But he doesn't have to go every step that you're asking him to. And I, so I think you can, you mentioned something like Fiergal Sharkey. He doesn't, have a, he doesn't have a policy prospectus. He has a campaign. And I think there's a little bit of, Labour needs to, I think, do a lot more campaigning and not always think they have to have every answer to every question about what they'll do. People aren't following it that closely. You have to signal the direction. 
I wanted to ask Claire you about Australia because you've just been in Australia and there's there's a really interesting parallel with with what's going on here and you've got a lot of the same people are actually involved in our election uh, Isaac Levida who was uh, working for the Liberals in Australia is is leading the Tory campaign here I know some of the people behind the successful Labour campaign in Australia last year are working with our Labour Party how close are those parallels how much can we learn from what happened there last year there are loads of lessons that we can take from Australia. Um, some of some of it in terms of the uh, campaigns that we'll be up against, but I think probably one of the biggest points of learning was a lot of strategists said that going into their twenty nineteen election where they were defeated, they pro- they were well ahead in the polls. They promised a big change agenda. We were change, change, change. But they said, and they had said a, a great conference where they said lots of the activists got all the policies they wanted and it was a great day for Labour. They lost. They lost. <laughs> 2022, they were disciplined. Albanese comes from the left faction. He's taken the party to the centre as leader. Mm. And he has had a disciplined, clear pledges campaign mm, that, they are, that, that they are delivering. And he's doing well as Prime Minister. He's got good approval ratings. Mm. So it may be that there are, there'll be differences. Compulsory voting in Australia as well really Big. changes how you do the campaign. So yeah. I definitely think there is not a blueprint that's out there, but there is a big lesson that people will vote for the centre-left. They'll vote for us partly because they realised during the pandemic that the other side just do not have the answers to the challenges we've got, but they can be potentially be massively put off by over-promising, overloading. Mm. doesn't mean your pledges don't have to be big, but it does mean if you go for high volume, it just overwhelms people. So uh, that was the, that yeah, was the lesson our, our from Australia. In, our pledges in 1997 were actually quite small, but the messaging was big. So, no, I, I, I think that's... Because I, I, I sort of see a bit of Kieran Albanese. I thought they fought a good campaign against a terrible opponent. I think the country... A bit like here, the country just absolutely had it up to the neck with Scott Morrison. And the the other thing that was interesting about that is that Scott Morrison really sort of leaned in hard on some of the culture war stuff, oh, yeah. and, and it didn't it didn't go well. And we know that that is a lever that the Conservative Party is. I mean, it's one of the only levers that's that's sort of left. But do you how, think Sunak how, wants to do it? Well, I mean, he certainly sanctions well a Braverman. I know to he go does, but does and, he re- is he doing that because of the internal politics? Because because it's not helping him. In they've my got view. this huge strategic problem that he doesn't look like he wants to be doing it, and he doesn't look like the sort of person who would do it. So when he does do it, it looks totally inauthentic. So even the people that might be persuaded by a more socially conservative agenda don't buy it from him. But he has got a sufficient number of people who really love this stuff, from Suella Braverman to Lee Anderson, and a very willing. Uh, complicit media who absolutely love whipping up all of this stuff as well. I mean, Claire, how does Labour navigate? Mm. Because this will be thrown at the Labour Party, the culture war stuff. Yeah, so it does matter. Like, I'm not in the camp of saying you can just talk about economics and culture doesn't matter. Like, culture matters. Uh, I think Sunak will deploy it. They ain't got much else in the bank. What are they going to do? Tell a great story about how transport's running brilliantly and your public services are great. So they haven't got many... Pharmacists. That's their new they they Dentists. So they haven't got exactly a lot of uh, tools at their disposal in the campaign. So I absolutely think we have to be prepared for the for them to come on the um, culture side of things. We need our own story to be confident on culture. Like the Labour last Labour government had a story on culture. It was mm. about the kind of country we are. I think really taking the theme of Alice's, Alice's book in terms of what can I do. This is about collective action and really trying to find solutions to problems. And I think that point about acting in a bipartisan way, bringing businesses in, bringing communities in, 
actually many of the solutions to the problems we've got aren't to be found just in tiny, narrow mm. bubbles of political parties. They are to be found in coming together. So I think we can have our own story, but I think it needs a song, strong story of nation and community that is positive, that is pro-equality, but is, is pretty mainstream with the beat of the British people on culture. Well, well uh, the, the reason I was following the Canadian conference, the Liberal Party, because they asked me to speak about the difference between campaigning as an opposition and as a government. And I was, I don't know if you remember this, but our frame for our second and third term election was always lots done, lots to do, lots to lose. And I was thinking about that from the Liberal perspective in Canada. They can do that. They've got a pretty good record. They've got good policies for the future. And they've got a terrible opponent, which is this guy, Polyevra, who's a sort of Farage type leading the Conservatives in Canada. I think for Sunak, that's really, really hard. Lots done. What? What, what, what is history going to define as the last 13 years? Brexit, that's about it. Gay marriage, okay, that's about it. Uh, lots to do. What is their plan? They can't really give you one because they're so divided. And lots to lose. What are you going to say that Keir Starmer and Ed Davey, you know, that's going to be their big thing. They're going to say, oh, he can't win his own. I actually thought watching the coronation that seeing Keir and Ed Davey sitting there together, I think a lot of people would have felt quite assured by the sight of the two of them. We were talking about this before. Yeah. Was like how's, how, how worrying is uh, the prospect for people who are part of the Labour movement uh, of a, a minority government that's, that's sort of propped up by Ed Davey? Because in many ways, Starmer and Ed Davey have more in common than Starmer does with the left of the party. So it might actually be preferable to him to work with a relatively large Lib Dem group no, listen, he'd want, than, I, if, than have a small majority. I'm sure that Keir... No, I honestly think that the next election can be anything from a hung parliament to a big Labour win. I think the Tory, the idea of the Tories getting back, I think we might as well go and sort of jump in the river if that happens. The whole country might as well disappear down a plug hole. But I think it, I think it could be small or it, it could be big. So Keir's, Labour's got to go all out to try and win big. But my point is... In recent elections, they did it with Ed, with Nicholas Sturgeon yes, inside yeah, Alex Salmon's yeah. I mean, pocket. that totally Absolutely. derailed but the I election. Think, I think if you think about it, if they try to do that this time, Labour and the SNP are going to be absolutely at each other in Scotland in a big way, in a way that, you know, maybe more than previous elections because it's so important to Labour. But the idea of putting Keir Starmer in Ed Davies' pocket, it's just not going to fly as a, as a kind of political strategy. So I, I actually think in a funny sort of way, it could help that they try and push that line. Well, I mean, so, well, I'd rather have them two together than you lot again. But also, if, the, if your argument is it's either a hung parliament or a Labour government, well, if you don't want a hung parliament, then there's only one option, exactly. right? So. Exactly. And look, given that lots of people listening to this are not just sort of Labour people, and actually a lot of people listening, I mean, Sam and I had How a bit do you know of, who's listening? Well, I think... We're just hoping that lots of people. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, unless, unless I plug it on the rest of his politics, where's your audience coming from? Well, I think my mum will listen to I think it. Me, I, I don't so. even think my mum will, to be honest. She's got a lot on, to be honest. She this. really liked Nicola Sturgeon, to be absolutely really like. But look, the point is, there will be people who are like, Lib Dems have done well, you know, the Greens are going to fight hard to get, you know, some extra parliamentarians. Claire, how does Keir Starmer make the case to those people to not put their box in the Liberal Democrats or the Greens and actually stay with Labour. How does Labour do that? We have to get rid of this lot. Like, that is a driving part of what we need to be saying. And I think, you know, Keir may not be the one to say that, but I think uh, Alice's point that, you know, Scott Morrison was a terrible candidate in Australia, that is a big factor in why Australian Labour won. I think the fact that you could have another hung parliament, I think we should make that a big part of Labour's message, which is to say, let's get this country moving. Let's get a Labour majority. It's within grasp. 
Um, so but I, just to pardon, yeah, the yeah. tactical voting thing is going to be really interesting, isn't it? Because if the big message is, let's get this lot out, Absolutely. that does make tactical voting really attractive. Yeah. And it did in the locals. I mean, there's no doubt that was going on yeah. pretty big. Well, I mean, if you look at Bracknell Forest, which is, you know, they, they had a very clear deal between the Lib Dems and Labour, more obvious than anywhere else. They didn't stand against each other. And Labour went from four councillors to taking the council. Mm. I mean, it was a it was a phenomenal, right? The mm. Tories got crushed, even though their vote only dropped a little bit. It's a pretty good argument for the kind of progressive alliance people who've been arguing for these kind of alliances yeah. at local level. I, I think, I, but I think the answer to your question about how do you get these people to feel it's okay? I think it, look, even if it's just a line in the manifesto. Oh. Well, oh. the indicates, <laughs> indicates that this has got to be about more than just getting rid of this government. We've actually got to fix politics. Politics feels like it could break. I think that we do need to look at how our politics works and Does how that our mean proportional representation? Well, it, means, it means looking at the electoral system. I think that's all you've got to say. You don't have to say we're going to have this system or that system, but you know, with the, if you just you do the old so are commission, you, are you do a you, review. But are you are you now in the mindset then, Alistair? We should that for the good of democracy, the good of your book, your very good book. Should we be looking to change the because like, like the strap line for this podcast that millions of people are going to be listening to yeah. is um, how to change Britain for the better? Mm. Is proportional is changing the voting system going to help do that? It certainly could, and I, I, I listen. As you know, I used to be totally against it, especially, totally. When, especially when we were in power. You were terrifying. <laughs> I, wasn't it? I, I, I was. You're generally terrifying. You're yeah, still terrifying now, I'm to not, be honest. I'm not. But... I, mean, I never was. But I'll tell you what. I was really struck by. We, we interviewed Helen Clark on the podcast, former New Zealand Prime Minister. She, she was like me. She was absolutely, you know, why on earth are we giving away power, etc., etc., etc. She says that the change in the electoral system in New Zealand has been an incredibly positive thing for New Zealand. And I guess when you talk about making big change, I kind of do want Keir to be the guy who comes along and surprises people, but because I don't think he is this boring, non-charismatic guy that people identify, and actually say, I'm going to be a big agent of change. We are going to have to change the way politics is done. We are going to sorry to plug the book, but we are going to have to get young people to realise this matters and we want them involved. So I, and I think that, you know, I don't think it has to be, back to my point, it doesn't have to be all the detail. You just say that, and that is something we're going to have to look at because people don't like the way, that, you know, they're right not to like it, I'm afraid. Claire, what do you think? So I agree, I agree with the analysis. I and mean, I think that the thing that we're, we're up against more than anything is people don't trust politicians, they don't trust politics. And why would they? So I think we have a real problem about the way that our system functions. So I would go beyond PR in terms of my own personal view about this. I think we have to connect people back to politics. I think we need serious reform in this country around how we can connect people because so many people, people were not voting. I mean, so many people were not even voting last oh, Thursday. Yeah. So I would be, as a, as a citizen, I would like to see people much better represented in politics. And But how do you do it? I think part a... of that is devolution. So I think part of that, not because of it in itself, but I think the take back control bill that Keir's talked about is part of it. So I'm not opposed to, but I just think on its own, electoral what about, reform doesn't what about, fix. What about lowering the voting age? Compulsory I, voting? All of those things I would, as a person, I would look right, at. But I, see if, I think if Labour were to say, lower the voting age, compulsory voting in local and national elections, Proper education in schools, oracy. Get, get rid of the House of Lords. Well, How, you know, they're doing that. Oracy, uh, yeah. teaching kids communication skills in school. I think all of this is about saying 
we want we want to hear your voice, but your voice has got to get into the political debate. Yeah, and I'd like to see more accountability for that as well. I like the idea that you can say to citizens, we need you to be part of this thing, but in return, citizens' assemblies, citizens' yeah. juries. Actually, if you look at devolved government, if you look at some of the way local governments are innovating around some of this, you've got the potential for much more engaged citizenry. Mm. See, this is a really interesting idea because I think a lot of people listening to this will think, ha-ha, that is a really interesting idea. That is a, a transformative idea. That's not a bit of tinkering around the edges. And also, let's be realistic, if we do have a Prime Minister, Keir Starmer, whether it's you know in, in a hung parliament or, or whatever, there isn't going to be a lot of money. So do you think he should be focusing on these kinds of, of, of changes? Well, th- because th- he's, there's not going to be a vast amount of money. To no, and I, the I think this goes back to, to Claire's point about the culture bit, because that's part of the cultural message. The, the reason that the country's kind of, you know, feels stuck is because so many people don't feel they have a stake in it. So actually saying to young people who feel pretty pissed off with the world, you know, we do think that if you're 16 and, seven, 16 and 17, you're entitled to vote. We do think that you're entitled to proper political education in schools. We do think, actually, that your voice matters. And I think, and, and I think the compulsory voting thing, I get the argument against it, but you talk to Helen, you talk to Julia Gillard, and Claire made the point, about how it affects the debate. So polarisation, I write a lot in the book about polarisation, the driving to the extremes. That happens because so many people in the centre aren't bothering. They're not voting, they're not engaged. If they actually have to vote, it makes, it changes the debate. Sam, what, what, what do you think about that? So, I mean, I think all of this stuff is incredibly important. I don't think it's something you can... I think it's the difference between, as I was talking about earlier, between campaigning and governing. I don't think this is exciting campaign material. I think you can use it in a campaign, but I think people are going to, their top line worry is going to be, how do I pay for my shopping? How do I get an appointment for for my mum at the NHS? But but I do think this is really, what happens with governments is they they think about this stuff in opposition because you've got a bit of time. And then you go into power and all of this stuff goes away. Fixing politics goes away, partly because you're focused on the immediate crisis and partly because it's actually not very, it doesn't suit you anymore to start thinking about proportional representation or making parliament stronger or you know all of these things it, it would actually harm you in most cases so how do you how do you really build it into how you govern i think is is, is almost more important than what labor say now well, and it, how do they how do they not you know because tony blair was interested in some of this stuff before but it all sort of got lost in power if you're saying you want to try to regenerate politics by giving particularly young people a stronger voice that's not, you know, that's not that difficult. You're not talking about stuff that you're going to, like Tony Blair, for example, you know, we promised to ban fox hunting. And I know that Tony spent the rest of his life <laughs> wishing we never had because it took up so much time and energy. But I don't see this in the same category at all. And I think that the other thing I think, very simple thing, the the ministerial code. I think the public might actually feel that it was serious if Keir indicated that there would be absolutely no tolerance of breaches and indeed that those basic standards should apply to all MPs. Now, I know Parliament has to be the arbiter of that, but actually to go into an election saying we are going to drive up the standards of conduct of MPs, I think there's an open door for that kind of thing. I mean, I want to take us back to the question, when should Labour start putting some, like some, some dropping some policy? I think, I think, look, I agree with them when they say there's lots of policy out there. It's just that it's not necessarily been presented in a way that connects I know, with the but public. We haven't heard much on tax and spend. No, but they don't need to do that. They, they, okay, no. but when should they do that? 
Well, Leave it to the short campaign? No, definitely not. No, you start laying the ground. The ground is being laid. I mean, you know, Rachel Reeves, nobody can say that around this table mm. and, and actually in the country, people sort of have a sense that there's a pretty tough approach to the economy, right? That's laying the ground. And then you've got to go forward from that. So I think they've got, they've got a bit of time. I think, by the way, on your point about the media, I think there's an argument for, here's a big, bold idea, you know how the Americans, you have to be American to own media, to own consi- considerable media in the United States. I think we should do the same here. And because they've got to be made an issue. I, and I, here's the thing. I actually think that one of the reasons the Tories did so badly in the local elections is because in the run-up, their kind of media slaves, their cheerleaders, went straight back into type. And they were doing, you know, the sun every day was about woke and the male were doing all this sir softy stuff and, and what have you. And I actually think making them an issue, and Keir got a taste of it with the whole nonsense of the beer in, mm. in Durham. So it's quite a different approach to what you took in the 90s. With yes, Murdoch. it is. It is. And, and it's a different approach that I tried to take with Tony at various points, but we had a bit <laughs> of a disagreement about it. Um, because I think, I think when we talk about culture, I actually think saying to the British public, is this who we are? These newspapers, is this who we are as a country? Because we're not. The truth is we're not. Most people are not like them. And so I think making them an issue, I think Keir's got, a, I think he's got the toughness to do it. I understand, by the way, why he might not want to, but I think as a policy idea, how can you object to that? Who owns our media? Who are these people? What are their real political interests? I think that's an issue, and it's not just a chattering class issue. Okay, so thanks very much for some uh, brilliant conversation today. We could keep going for hours. Um, but I want to ask as our sort of final question to both of you, is Labour passing the power test? Are they ready for government? Yes. I mean, Labour are showing that they are well on the way. Just look at the trajectory of what Keir's achieved. Look at what that could mean by the time of a general election. But my overarching message is we need you. This cannot be something that is just done Uh, by an individual leader. It's got to be a movement of people, whether you're motivated because you are sick of what the Tories have done to the country or you're motivated because you're inspired by Labour. Um, I'll take you on any basis. Uh, Come and join our movement for change. I've been struck recently that, particularly speaking to any business audiences, there's a different feel about when they talk about Labour now. It's completely different. And I was at an event recently where I was speaking and, and, and so was Rachel Reeves and I stayed to watch Rachel and it was really interesting watching it because I could see people listening and watching in a way that they weren't a year ago and they certainly weren't when Jeremy Corbyn was leader. And the other thing that I find at these events is the number of people who say to me, oh, we had Jonathan Reynolds around last week. Oh, we saw Pat McFadden last week. Oh, Rachel Reeves came to see us. Oh, we're seeing Keir next week. There's a real kind of... And that's because... Whereas I, I, get, I bet when you were there, Claire, it was sometimes a struggle to get people in for sort of policy discussion and so forth. Now they're kind of banging down the door because they want to try to have a conversation, influence and so forth. So I think they are, they're, they're passing the power test in that I think the British public think there probably will be a Labour government and by and large feel okay about that. I think that Labour should be setting themselves the objective of winning big And I think winning big is about doing all this stuff that we talked about, about policy, but above all, it's about that big message of how do you give people hope and optimism at a time when everything feels so shit. 
Well, we're really grateful for your time. I mean, you've been absolutely fantastic um, guests. Thank you so much. And Alistair's brilliant book is out. It's called But What Can I Do? Why Politics Has Gone So Wrong and How You Can Help uh, Fix It. Now, Alistair, before we let you go, because um, we're just newbies to this podcasting business, if you get any tips for, for my good friends, Sam and, and myself... Well, the first thing I say is I would go mad having these distracting people wandering around <laughs> in the background. So I'd get rid of them, whatever they are, just, just, or put them, in a, sacked. put them in a blacked out room. Uh, I certainly wouldn't overscript it. And I think the other thing, it's about it's about the free flow and exchange of views between you two. It has to be the kind of thing that holds together week by week. And I'll tell you the other thing I've really found, and this is a really good one for you, Sam. Our listeners absolutely love detail. Well, I can definitely provide that. I mean, so, <laughs> so, you're, you know, I mean, so when you started, what was the place you were talking about? Uh, Bracknell Forest. Bracknell Forest. Yes. Well, here he goes. He goes. I mean, that that is a bit of Bracknell Forest yes. will go a long way in your podcast. Don't get me started. I'll start reading off every ward in the country. <laughs> but good luck with it. Just don't try and get anywhere near our sort of numbers. <laughs> I wouldn't worry about that. You're all right for a while on the house. So Alistair and Claire have just left us. What did you make of that conversation? I uh, thought it was fascinating. I mean, what brilliant guests to to, to kick us off. Um, I feel that they are a little bit overly optimistic about how well everything is going. And I'm not saying it's not going well. I'm not sort of subscribing to the kind of doom narrative from the local elections for, for, for Labour. But I think... What Alistair talks about a lot in his book uh, and what he's talked a lot about, about enthusing people and exciting people, I do think Labour have still got a way to to go. What you do hear a lot of people asking is, like, what would Labour do? We know what they won't do, but what what will Labour do? So I think that does need, in in my view, a bit more um, sort of fleshing out. But the two things I was really interested to hear Alistair go on was two quite big policy ideas changing media ownership quite quite uh, radically and he he's very pro changing the voting system now and I, I think that will be quite interesting to, to to a lot of people across the labor movement but in the green party the liberal democrats as well i think that's quite interesting yeah i mean i'm very much in favor of of, of changing the voting system i think it's one of those things that you know, it can it can seem a bit arcane and boring, but actually would have m- almost more impact on our politics than anything else that you could do in terms of making more people's vote count. And you can't do anything more than to, to to drive interest in politics than than making people's votes uh, count. I do worry though that you, you know you look at uh, uh, Starmer, who used to be in favour of PR, and now has sort of moved against it somewhat. It, it's not in their interests at the moment, so it's hard to see why Labour would go down that road towards proportional representation now when they're the party that would probably be hurt the most by it in terms of other voters going to Greens, Lib Dems or even new parties that might emerge as a result. So I I believe in it strongly. I just struggle to to believe that they are going to do anything about it. And what did you think about um, Alistair and Claire's confidence that that everything is is going in the right direction and that everything is good in terms of the strategy. So I totally agree with them that the Tories are in serious trouble. And I agreed with Claire's point that they're they're almost not, um, they're not seeing how much danger they're in. That said, um, I think they are too positive about people's impression of Labour at the moment. And I'm the only one of you three who's never met Keir Starmer. Um, 
and, and I've spoken to a lot of people who do, and, and their view of him is very different to mine as someone who's only seen him on television and only seen him through uh, his political appearances, where he does come across as very mechanical, very dull. And you'll have people like Claire uh, and Alistair who know him better say he's not like that in person. It's not like that to work for him. I, I, I don't know when or if it's possible for that real Keir Starmer that people who know him say is there to come out and be shown publicly, because I'm not seeing it. And that's always really difficult. I remember when I worked for Ed Miliband, who um, had quite a bad public image, but then people who met Ed Miliband in real life were like, he's really nice. I remember... Well, I worked for Michael Gove. I mean, you could, <laughs> a bigger contrast between sort of Westminster Village view of Michael, which is, tends to be pretty positive, and the public image, which is not positive. I always remember... Um, a Guardian interview coming on the train one day with um, Ed's team when we were like in the middle of the election campaign, the short campaign. And they said, you know, if the election could be won on somebody being really nice to people or on a train and everybody like loving meeting him and getting selfies, then Ed Miliband's going to have a, a sort of landslide majority. Reader, it did not turn out <laughs> quite that way. I thought it was interesting, Alistair, saying, you know, if you could just parachute him into Downing Street now, he'd be a brilliant prime minister. And I, I actually believe that's true. I think he would be a really good prime minister. But you could say that about quite a lot of people, apart from Boris Johnson, <laughs> obviously. But that's not the rules of, of the game. Like the rules of the game are you have to win power. You have to pass that power test to prove to the country that you can do the job. And I suppose that's why it feeds back to the proportional representation. Whatever we think about proportional representation, Keir Starmer will have to win based on the rules as they are now. I mean, you can't wish away the system now as much as you don't like it. Yes, which means he has to focus on appealing to voters, a pretty narrow group of voters. That's what First Past the Post does as an electoral system. It forces you to focus on a narrow group of voters who are going to make the biggest difference. And they tend to be actually not particularly in tune with the Labour base, those voters that he really needs to win over. They are a bit more socially conservative. They are a bit more likely to have voted leave. That's why they went to the Tories in 2017 and 2019. They're the people he needs to win back. So the messaging he's going to use is, is not necessarily the messaging that a lot of our listeners are going to want to hear or that I would necessarily want to hear. That's just the nature of our, of our voting system. Mm. So, Sam, we're kicking off this podcast series at an excellent time, just having had the, the, the local um, uh, elections. You'll be crunching more numbers as, as we go through and you'll be delving more into um policy stuff as well. And we're going to have lots of, of really interesting guests, but we're really keen to hear from our listeners, aren't we? Yes, we definitely want to hear from you too. How did we do on our first episode? Hopefully it wasn't just my mum listening. Actually, I don't even know if she would listen. She's pretty busy. <laughs> um, no, we do. We definitely want to hear hear from you about how we can uh, how we can make it better, what you want to hear about, what policies you want to hear about as well. So please get in touch with your thoughts on anything we've talked about either today or that we could talk about in the future and tell us what you think needs to happen to help us get a better country. You can tweet us at the paratest or you can email us on pod pod at theparatest.co.uk that's uh, pod at theparatest.co.uk and as uh, Sam said we're really keen to hear your reflections do you agree with what uh, Alistair and Claire said today or do you think that there's still a, a way to go and also really keen to hear your views on that sort of debate that Sam and I had at the top of, of, of the show where I as a more uh, tribal Labour person 
think Labour should be really focused on on a majority, but Sam's much more relaxed about a coalition with the Liberal Democrats and and the Labour Party. Um, what, what do you think? We're really keen to hear your views. Head to our Substack site where you can look us up the power test, subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And uh, if you can rate and review us wherever you're listening, that would be really helpful. And join us next time uh, when we're going to go for the really awkward issue of Brexit and what Labour should do about that. We'll see you then. <laughs> <laughs>